Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Uh, where are my men at that came back from Man Weekend? Are you awake this morning? It's good. Hopefully your wife didn't snore as, as loud as some of the guys in the cabins. Uh, some of you didn't laugh because maybe, I don't know, I don't even know. I didn't say that last service, so I apologize if I offended you and you're married to a snore. Uh, but we had such a great time this weekend uh, at Man Weekend, so thanks for all who were a part, uh, came out, and uh, we just really had, really had a good time. Well, as, uh, as Pastor Britt said, uh, we are in a season called All In for us as a church, and in uh, and, and some years this season lends to uh, some messages specifically on generosity, uh, but more times than not, it's, it's messages about discipleship. Uh, because we actually believe that generosity giving uh, is, is a rhythm of obedience of what God has asked of us. And, and that's a part of following Jesus. It's, it's a, a muscle of discipleship. And so um, these messages continuing in Mark, the whole series in Mark has been discovering who Jesus is and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus. And so uh, we're continuing in that. Last week, uh, we were in the passage where Jesus clears out the temple. And uh, the truth of the matter is there are a lot of us that in our lives, we've got a root problem where we've allowed things to take up space and the place that belongs to worship and honoring Jesus. And he cleansed the temple uh, last week in scripture. And we're believing uh, for us it is, it is a matter of us allowing him to clean our lives and, and, and purify our life. And, uh, and this week, we're going to be continuing the title of the message today is, What Are You Building On? Why? Because it's a continuation of what does it look like to be a disciple. And when we follow Jesus, it allows us uh, to be fully devoted, all in, in our walk with Jesus. Like there is a possibility for us to truly leave our old life behind, be a new creation. This is all through scripture and follow him. And so one of the ways we do that, and probably one of the hardest ways we do that as as believers, as Christians, is exercising obedience in our giving and our generosity. And so as you came in today, uh, you did. Everybody got a, what we call a pledge card, a commitment card. Um, and, And next week, we're asking everybody to bring these back along with your miracle offering. Well, why do we do that, Pastor? Because we actually want you to pray. We want you to listen to what God is stirring for you and your family And not just, I said it last service, you know, my kids hear me sometimes and there's a difference between them hearing me and listening to me. Uh, We want you to pray and listen, which leads to obedience. And then we watch what God will do. And so we celebrate every step. We we talk about the, the giving ladder, the ladder of generosity every single year. And some of you are like, I'm tired of hearing about the ladder. But then last week we had a guy in our service who hadn't been in church uh, in decades and said, Pastor, talk to me a little bit more about this giving ladder. Uh, and, and, and why do we do that? Because we believe our mission is that we're to journey with you from where you are to where Jesus wants you to be. And so that is taking steps. And we believe that we can take steps even in our generosity. And so every step along the way, we celebrate. We don't look and say, well, if you're not in this category, you're not, you're not whatever. It, it, it's not about that. We want to celebrate because here's what I know. Every step of generosity I've made in my life, every step of obedience, even in other areas of my life, to the Lord and what he is speaking has been honored and blessed. And I, I just like to describe it of exercising a muscle, that the more you exercise it, the easier it is to use it, the stronger that muscle gets. And so we celebrate everybody who takes a step. And so maybe this is the first time you've seen the generosity ladder. I just want to run through it with you real quick. It's, we, we know that there are people who have never given. Maybe you've given to other organizations. You've never given back to the church to say, God, I, I'm giving back part of what you've asked of me. I'm beginning this. And so you know what? We celebrate people who just say, I'm ready to start doing something. And then we have people, oftentimes they'll start and then they become steady. And it's, I, I, I'm not just going to give randomly, but I'm going to give X number of dollars a month or per week or per year or whatever it is, but I'm getting in a rhythm of that. And then we believe that God actually gives us clear instruction of what the tithe is. And we are a tithing, believing church that, that God asks us to give 10% through scripture. We see that principle. Um, and so 
It's a stairway to get to saying, hey, we're going to do what God has asked us to do. And so actually we formatted the card to kind of reflect this. On the left-hand side, you see, hey, by faith I'm committing to starting steady or scriptural. That's going to be your tithe. And then over and above is where we get into the sacrificial and the supernatural. Because we also see that there are times through Scripture where people gave above and beyond what is scripturally the baseline, and God blessed and God honored it. And so next week, we want you to pray over this this week and come back, and it is going to be an incredible, I feel like, a time of celebration. The miracle offering to me is not like, oh, here we go again. No, we, Brittany and I actually pray about this. We, we pray and believe, and you know what we do? We like to include our kids. So when she talks about kids and students, we don't believe it's... It's ever too early to start teaching your kids about giving. Maybe your kids aren't as selfish as mine are, but I just believe that early on it is good to begin to teach them to give, that it's not all about what we can get and what we can take, but it is about being generous with what God has blessed us with already. And we just, miracle offering every year, uh, one of the greatest, I, I think, things that I love about it is on that Monday after miracle offering, I get to call organizations and say, hey, I know we told you we got some funds coming your way. Here's what we're able to do because it's either pledges or it's tangible gifts that have come in. I've got a slew of emails from missionaries who are waiting to know, can we pick them up? Are we picking them up? What, what are we going to be able to do? We've got others who need some increase in their budget so that they can get back to other parts of the world. I told last service, uh, if you ever slip out to use the restroom while we're preaching, it is never a Sunday I've slipped out when I'm not preaching that I don't walk out into the lobby with parents holding kids that have been fussy or needed to eat during service. And can I just tell you, we got more kids than we got space for right now. And so part of our all-in project is getting some people to help us with the planning and organization of what does that look like as we continue to grow as a church and how are we meeting these needs? All of this happens through all-in. And so here's what we get to do as the church. The more we participate, the more we're obedient, the more we continue to make faith. That's why we ask everybody to fill one of these out. So we know how can we plan and walk through this as a church for 2024. And so uh, we're excited about it. It's going to be a great week. Um, and we're going to hop into God's word right now. If you have your Bible, we're going to be uh, in Mark chapter 11. Um, I did this a few weeks ago. I read a little bit of scripture and then we kind of got into the message. We're going to do it again today because uh, we're starting in Mark chapter 11 verse 27 and our text will go all the way to Mark chapter 12 verse 12 uh, today. And so if you have your Bible, I'm going to read uh, these, these first verses here starting in verse 27. And it said this, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and the sacrifice that he paid for us. God, as we answer this question of what are we building our life upon, may that answer be you today. Would you transform our hearts, challenge us, stretch us, change us into being all in followers of you. We give you worship and praise and honor. It's do your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, we're hopping into uh, this passage and, and I love, I love that the fact that we are going verse by verse through this, um, because I, I think 
that, that when you just preach this passage, if I just preach this passage, we would have no idea the repetition. Jesus, this is actually three Sundays in a row that Jesus has made his way to the temple in Jerusalem. This is the third day in a row for Jesus. He comes in on a, on a donkey, then, and he goes to the temple that evening, and he sees things. He comes back, as I said last week, and he clears out the temple uh, the, the following day. Now he's back in the temple again. And I just imagine this picture of what is he going to do next? These religious leaders, they come to him. Maybe they are just trying to prevent something chaotic and crazy from happening again. Um, but, but here we find the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They were, they were likely members of the, the, the Sanhedrin, which was 71 men who'd been granted religious control and authority by the Roman government. And so this kind of gives us a little bit of clarity of who the players, of who we're dealing with. They acted as a go-between between the people and Rome, and they were in charge of all uh, the, the, the temple and all the activity that happened there. So when Jesus cleared out the temple, he really stepped into these guys' territory, or so they thought. They were the authority according to their perspective. And so they wanted to know why Jesus thought he could do all that he had done. So they asked Jesus these two questions. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do them? And our first point is the answer to these questions. Jesus came with heaven's authority. Again, this series is about who Jesus is, what it looks like to be a disciple. We are answering, where does Jesus get his authority? Jesus came with heaven's authority. The authority of Jesus had struck these men. It had hit them. It had slapped them in the face. Uh, I'm sure that they were quite surprised when Jesus showed up and started clearing out the marketplace of the temple. See, he showed up in the court of the Gentiles, as we talked about last week, 35 acres of an area. This was as far as if you are not of Jewish descent, this is as far as we could have gotten in our worship of God in this area would have been this court. And Jesus shows up and he clears it all out. Now to give you some context, I think our property here at the church is about seven acres, six to seven acres, somewhere in that uh, range. And so imagine five times our property all lined up. Jesus clears it all out. Like, I don't think I have ever read and understood this area to be so vast and so grand, but Jesus was doing what only Jesus can do. He brings it all to a screeching halt, and if there's anything I see in that context of the story is that that's power, strength, and authority. Jesus' whole ministry was authoritative, though. This shouldn't surprise us. Everything he did was authoritative. This passage and even the ones that are going to follow is not the only time that he had issues with his authority and the so-called authority of the religious elite of Israel at this time. He taught with authority from the very beginning of Mark. Now, we're in week 39 of our journey through Mark. And so maybe 39 weeks ago, your memory is about as good as mine. And so I, I don't fully recall what I preached on 39 weeks ago. Uh, maybe some of you are better. Or maybe you got one of those Mark journals and you just like flip over and you're like, yes, pastor, this is exactly what you said here. Uh, but here's what we see from the very beginning in Mark chapter 1. He's teaching in Capernaum's synagogue, and he is, is speaking with authority. And you know what their response to him from Mark chapter 1 was? What is this? A new teaching with authority? He forgives the paralyzed man that's, that's let down through the roof with authority. He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. We find that in Mark chapter 2. Religious leaders challenge him when he's eating with tax collectors. And what does he say? He said, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Authority. They bother Jesus about his disciples and fasting. And he, with authority, told them that God was looking for fresh wineskins, like the disciples, not old ones like them. 
when they cornered him on breaking the Sabbath regulations, and we're still just in Mark chapter 2, by the way, he called himself the authoritative Lord of the Sabbath. Authority flowed from Jesus. Why? Because it was heaven's authority that is on Jesus. It is the divine. He is fully God and fully man. And with their question, these men thought that they were in authority of Jesus. They thought that they had, they had the, 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 the say-so and the authority to interrogate him and ask questions. And unfortunately, this is often the way that humanity works. Powers on earth think that they are judge and jury over Jesus. People think that their opinion of Jesus is the authoritative one. But Jesus is the authority over us. His rightful place is the first place. It's supreme. His, his supremacy is over everything. We find that in Colossians 1.18. But Jesus says to them, he, he answers their question with a question. He says, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. When Jesus asked these questions, he was rightfully placing himself above the Sanhedrin, above these religious leaders. They thought that they could interrogate him, but he is their superior in every way, and now he questions them. I love this, that we see this in Jesus. But Jesus isn't dodging their question. You know, if my kids start asking me questions when I ask them, we're going to have some issues. But again... We have to come to the truth of mom and dad are the superior authority here. And when our kids challenge our authority, and I'm just speaking practically, it is an unbiblical perspective on, on the authority of the house. And in the same way, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, are asking questions from an improper place here. And Jesus isn't dodging their questions he wasn't changing the subject. It had everything to do with their question and their issue. He, by asking the question, is actually exercising his authority. They want to know where Jesus got his authority, and Jesus is basically saying, hey, I've got my authority from the same place as John. But how did you treat John? What did they think of John? Was John created by, by God and sent by God, or was... John just built on, on man-made hype and enthusiasm. If, if, if John was from God, why did they not believe his message? See, John had continually pointed to Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing here in the question and how he framed it. The Spirit of God, the Father, God the Father, they, they, they show up themselves at John's baptism of Jesus fully. The Trinity is fully present. If John was from God, then certainly Jesus also had the authority of heaven. So they discuss it and they say, well, if we say from heaven, then he's going to respond and say, well, why didn't you believe him? And if we say from man, then everybody else is actually going to be upset by this. And we now see what Jesus was up to. These men were not honest. They wondered where Jesus got his authority, but they weren't even willing to consider John's authority coming from God. And so if they wouldn't honestly consider John, why would they honestly consider Jesus? And Jesus puts them in this dilemma. They didn't want to confess John had come from God. You know what, you know what John spoke about the leadership, the religious elite? He called them fruits of vipers. They didn't want to say John had come from men because the people all thought John had come from God and they feared the people. In their answer, though, we see, I believe, two primary reasons of why people do not follow Jesus. Two primary reasons. The first is I think that people have a fear of others, fear of man. They, this keeps people from following Jesus. Maybe this is even the reason that you've yet to say yes to following Jesus. Jesus, because we begin to ponder what will others think? What will others say about me? This is an issue today. It was also an issue then. But for me, I think believing, trusting, walking, following with 
Jesus is the wisest, most brilliant, uh, intellectually responsible thing that you could ever do. But I want to tell you that society and culture will not support that statement from me. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I also need you to hear that there may be times that you're ridiculed, you're isolated, you're ostracized, you're persecuted, you're challenged, you walk through struggle and trial because of your willingness to follow Jesus. So don't think just by following Jesus, it's the easier route. But oftentimes people see the challenges that may be presented that others may bring upon my life and choose, well, I don't want to walk through that. I even believe we're in a time where we may walk and see financial persecution or difficulty come because of our willingness to follow Jesus. Maybe we're passed over for the promotion. Maybe we lose our job. Maybe we lose out on, 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 on customer business because of our willingness to follow Jesus. But I want you to know that if that is the path that God allows you or leads you to walk on, you're not the first person to experience hardship because of your faith and belief and trust in Jesus. We actually find, and there's a lot of, 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 of wonderful context here, but I, I want to read this in Hebrews 10, 34, because the early church is facing some persecution. And the writer of Hebrews writes this in, in Hebrews 10, 34. He says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. There was a season that there was plundering and, 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 and there were challenges because they were Christians, but they said yes with full joy of knowing that you can take everything I have because my treasure is far greater than anything anyone will ever accumulate here on this side of heaven that's stored up in eternity. And bless God, if you take it all and you kill me and take my life, I can still follow Jesus because of the joy I have found in him. You know the context of Hebrews 10.34? It's also the same passage where, where it tells us not to neglect meeting together the saints. Now you may, if you've been in church long enough, pastors will like to preach this message to help you get your church attendance up. Hey, let's not forsake the gathering of the saints and the believers. Now, I think that church attendance should be an active part of who we are, and, and I think it is a part of us keeping uh, Christ-centered homes and, and marriages and relationships, and I think biblical community is vital to the formation of who God has created and called us to be, but there is so much more. The, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them, hey, just because you've been persecuted, just because you're losing everything, just because there are those who are getting arrested and there are challenges and there are trials that people are walking through, do not forsake the gathering of the believers. And you know why? Because endurance for Jesus is hard, but it's so much harder to do on our own. It's not meant. We aren't meant to walk this life alone. That's why when we got a bunch of men, which is so crazy to me, I stand back every time we have a man weekend and I'm like, who would have thought that we are taking a bunch of grown men to stay like a bunch of summer camp campers and cabins with, with ungodly sounds. It sounds like trains are coming through on the tracks all night. Beds that were made for seven-year-olds and springs just feeling all. I see y'all walking with all sorts of discontorted bodies today from the springs. We, we run out of food because more guys showed up on Friday night. But you know what our solution is? Feed you more on, on Saturday morning. And then, hey, once we get you full, we'll go shoot some stuff and projectiles out of, out of firearms and soda cans and golf ball. I mean, you talk about it. I'm like, who would have thought? But you know what? For all the fun and all the great food and all, you know what I walked away with tears in my eyes yesterday was the, the beautiful picture that we need community. I said it to the guys before we left that, that oftentimes in the good seasons of our life, we fool ourselves into thinking that we can step away from the relationships in the community. But it's in the trials and the difficulty and the hardships of life that we are constantly reminded God did not intend for us to walk this together. 
So now here, don't forsake the gathering of the saints and the believers. Why? Because it is so vital to us being able to walk out this life. It's a way to endure the hostility and the difficulties that we may face just because of our faith. I also think that in their questions, this is like a side message just for, I mean, I'm going to get there, but. The second piece of this is their questions. It shows us that there is an unwillingness to lose power. See, they didn't want their small amount of authority that they thought was magnificent in their own eyes. They didn't want to lose that. And so they challenged that. Why did they challenge John? They challenged Jesus. The religious leaders, they had authority, but John rebukes them. Jesus rebukes them. And they just weren't willing to give up their authority and their power to Jesus. Instead, they cling to it. And maybe today for you that the thought of letting Jesus become the authority, the king of your life, it might scare you. But it shouldn't. That's living without Jesus' good and gracious and merciful and powerful leadership. Living without that should scare you. Self-leadership, self-expression, personal empowerment, that should scare you. Giving the reins of your life to Jesus should not scare you. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. When we pray our prayer of salvation at every service, you know why we embrace Jesus as Savior and as King? Because so many times we want to be rescued, but maybe we struggle with giving the reins of our life. But it is both and. Jesus came to save us and to be King of our life. Jesus didn't halfway fulfill the prophecy, just the people of this time thought that he was going to be an earthly king, but oh, can I tell you how much more of a king, there is no kingdom on this earth that can can capture the picture of who Jesus is as king. So don't fear others and don't fear the loss of power. Instead, be honest. Declare that Jesus is king and authority, and and you've given him the authority, the reins of your life. Submit to him. The second piece of, of, of the message today is Jesus is the ultimate way God reveals himself to us. He goes on to tell a parable, and I and and I'll read the first verse here. He begins to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. And put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and he leased it to tenants and he went into another country. He continues this conversation by by speaking to them in, in parables. And what we know from this one verse is that this man was set up to produce a great harvest of grapes. Well, how do you know that? Well... I just know to me when I put fences around things, it's because I want to keep the things that will challenge it out. He digs a ditch for the wine press, which means he fully intended for these vineyards, this vineyard to produce some good grapes for a good harvest for the wine press. And he built a tower in the midst of it. This vineyard was meant to succeed. Now, for us, this may not immediately strike us as significant, but for the religious leaders of that time, they they would have recognized this vineyard right away because the prophet Isaiah had written about such a place. See, we think Jesus is just having conversations. Jesus is wrecking their world, whether they saw it in that moment or not. In Isaiah 5, God spoke of Israel as a vineyard. God had planted them and then produced ideal conditions for his vine. And he looked for them to yield grapes. But scripture says instead they yielded wild grapes. And in the prophecy of Isaiah, God destroys the vineyard. But this parable is about to turn in a different direction. See, we can learn about God and his nature here. 
See, he's presented in Isaiah and here in this parable as the one who, who plants a choice, a premium, a superior vineyard. It's, it's a place of opportunity. And under the conditions that he, the master gardener, the, the master vineyard owner, he, he, he's established certain conditions and fruit can certainly grow. God provided Israel everything that they needed to become a house of prayer. And what do we find? Jesus is so frustrated last week because Israel has been seen as being fruitless. Why does he curse the fig tree? Because it was fruitless. They were set up for fruit, but they were not producing as God had intended. But I want to tell you today that this parable is still the same story of humanity. From the very beginning of creation, God built a garden that was meant to flourish. If you haven't read the story of creation lately, I would remind you to read back of God's intended plan for the world and creation. But because we ignored his word and continued to ignore his word, destruction came because we allowed sin to enter into the equation. But as his church, we should allow him to reverse this in us. Instead of fruitlessness, we should recognize and realize that his spirit now lives within us. Learn his word, live by his ways, his plan, and watch as he'll produce fruit in our lives. See, he's given us everything we need to live a fruitful life. And I want to encourage you, if you didn't hear it last week, and it's not that you've got to be the one that's working to produce the fruit. If you will live according to the way that he has mapped out in God's word, in his word, you will live a fruitful life. Second Peter, Peter says this, Second Peter 1, 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, meaning God has given you everything you need in his word to, to, for life and to live a godly one at that. God is good and he built the vineyard out for his people. The conditions for fruit are good for God's people, for those who follow him. But I want you to see what happens as we continue in this, in this parable. When the season came, in verse 2, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them to another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And these servants are all representatives of the messengers of God's prophets all throughout Scripture. Now, maybe you don't see this, but people like Moses and Aaron and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they were all God's servants. And you know what happened? They were all initially rejected. We read about the life, we study about the life of King David and his kingship, but let me remind you where the prophet found him. His dad had rejected him to the point that he didn't even call him in from, from the fields of being with the sheep to, for the prophet Samuel to even look and acknowledge could he be king. From the very beginning, every messenger and every prophet throughout Scripture was rejected. The religious elite in Israel, they, they often rejected, persecuted God's true messengers and servants. And the prophet Jeremiah, he says this in Jeremiah 25, 4, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants and prophets. And then Jesus backs him up in Matthew 23, 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. From Abel to Zechariah, every messenger from A to Z was on them because they had rejected them all. But I want to tell you, it's not only Israel who's rejected God's messengers. All of humanity has a tendency to reject the revelation of God. The message of God. Romans tells us that, that humanity works hard to suppress the truth about God 
but that God has plainly revealed himself in creation. Romans 1, 18 through 20. This means that God has written not only in his word, but he's also written throughout creation. Humanity should look at creation and make some certain conclusions, I believe. One writer said it this way, and I love this. He said, in the, in the precision of the universe, we should conclude there is a designer. In the expanding nature of the universe, we should conclude there is a first cause who was uncaused. In the habitability of our planet, we should conclude God loves us. And in our inner turmoil and search for God, we should conclude he can be found. We should look for ways he has broken in to declare himself, to reveal himself to us. He has revealed himself, but just as Israel rejected her messengers, the prophets, so often we reject the messenger of creation. See, Israel is a part of this revelation as well. It, 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 it's, it's so unique and probably very timely for us in, in what's happening in Israel currently. But the fact of their existence, so many years of persecution have happened. It, it stands out as a testament of God's election of the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Other kingdoms, other people groups... They're lost to history, but Israel has, has, has persevered. Even in, in, in the last century, has been reestablished. There's so much attention that's on this, and this is why we continue to pray and we continue to believe for God to heal and God to work in the nation of Israel. Why? Because it's a part of the testimony and the testament of who God is. This parable actually shows us what mankind is like, but it also shows us what God is like. Because throughout time, we see that God is patient. And I don't know about you, but I am glad that I am grateful. I am over the top grateful that God is patient. He sent waves of messengers. Patiently, he communicates. He calls himself in, in scripture uh, to be long. He says he calls himself long suffering. And this is, uh, is part of his long suffering nature is waiting for people to hear his voice. I want to tell you today that he is waiting for you. If you have not responded to his calling, he is waiting for you. But in our parable, the keepers of the vineyard, the tenants, they're trying to throw off, evade, escape, silence every servant that has been sent their way. And without Jesus, this is the way of mankind, of humanity. And maybe for you right now, you know God's trying to break through. Maybe he's using a season in your life, and we don't love these seasons. None of us embrace these seasons and welcome these seasons, but oftentimes we have walked through these seasons. And maybe God's using a season of turmoil, of difficulty, of struggle to begin to melt off some things in your life, to begin to clear some space in your life, to remove some things out of your life that surgery always hurts. But oftentimes it's needed for us to obtain the healthy product on the other side. And maybe, just maybe, God's allowing you to walk through a season of difficulty because he's trying to break through for you to hear his voice. And I just want to tell you through it all, look at Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. He has sent servant after servant, message after message to each one of us. For me, I look back in my life and I can say, that was God and I rejected it. That was God's intervention and I ignored it. That was God's point of, of purpose for me and I tried to escape it. But there was that moment that I look back and I, I declare how grateful I am for God's patience because he didn't stop coming after me. He loves us. He loves you. He sent his son for you to die for you. He wants to bring you home. I want to continue in verse 6. He had still one other. 
This is Jesus telling this parable, by the way, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus is speaking about himself to the religious elite right here. He is the beloved son who the father sent. Jesus knew he was going to die. He's, he's declaring this. I mean, we are, we are in the week leading up to his death. But even as he approached his death, he knew the love of the father. Because they are one. Father, son, and spirit. Three in one. Hard concept for us to understand and process. But this wasn't the father saying, hey, I, I, I don't want to face the punishment. I'm going to send you instead. Like this, is, this is not how, how God's working, but this was the only way that the, the absolute, unbelievable example, greatest sacrifice of love was for him to send his son, Jesus. And we see this in the parable, and just as the son was the final messenger in the parable, he's also the final messenger and message for us Today, God revealed himself in creation. God revealed himself in Israel's story. He has revealed himself in fulfilled prophecy, but now he has revealed himself in his son, Jesus. And the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, by, after, after giving his life, after being the sacrifice, after paving the way, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The last messenger has come and we still preach the last message of Jesus today. That's why. But as we conclude today, the third thing that we see in this text is that Jesus is the cornerstone. We ask the question, who are you building your life upon? And we've taken a long journey to get here. But Jesus is the cornerstone. We see what the owner of the vineyard does, starting in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is where the vineyard story takes a turn. This is a little different. Isaiah 5, this story is the vineyard. And here, Jesus, we see God's judgment is not on the vineyard, but on the tenants of the vineyard. They were held responsible for their lack of fruit and how they treated the master's servants and the master's son. But these leaders knew that Jesus was talking about them. And they weren't super excited about it. I don't know if you pick up that. They, they wanted to arrest him. They feared the people, but they were going to have to wait for a more private time. But this parable shows that God's judgment would be on them. Now, here's another thing that we're going to learn about God is God is just. He's good. He's gracious. He provides opportunity for us to be fruitful He's patient, long-suffering. He'll send waves of messengers to draw us to himself. But we should not misinterpret his long-suffering and his patient nature as permission to live however we want to live. Eventually, justice must be served and judgment must arrive. God will deal with all sin. That's not a friendly Sunday morning message. We, 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 we would want to like conveniently avoid the, those realities, but 
I, I just want to tell you, I can't speak anything other than the truth that I read and I know to be real about God is God will deal with all sin. Why? Because of his holiness. He has to. He has to. He can't overlook it. But he's also merciful and gracious. And although he must judge, it's his last messenger, it's Jesus that makes a way for mercy and grace. He will judge, but can I tell you through scripture, and we're going to get there, but God first releases his judgment into his son. Don't reject him. He's your gift. Believing in him can gain you the righteousness of God that is not obtained any other way. When he says, have you heard this scripture? I, I just want you to hear this. It comes from Psalm 118. This is the same passage of scripture that as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem two days prior, the crowds sing during his triumphal entry into the city. And Jesus asked the religious elite, have you read this scripture? The Sanhedrin, the teachers of Israel. By most accounts, they would have memorized it all. They knew it, but they did not understand it. In the psalm, there's a line about a, a stone that arrived at a construction site. The builders looked at it. They didn't want it. They sent it away. And then the time came for setting this vital, most important cornerstone. And they looked around the, the quarry for it, and they realized they had accidentally rejected it. It was the cornerstone. And Jesus here, he quotes this little song lyric to help them understand what is happening. The son, he had come. They didn't know he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ that they had been waiting for. So they rejected him, but he was absolutely the most important part of the new structure that he was building. He is the chief cornerstone. And one day everyone will recognize Jesus for who he is. Philippians 2, 8 through 11 talks about that every knee will bow. And for, for many, I don't want to say for some, for many, this will be too late. But the chief cornerstone will be revealed. If Jesus is the cornerstone and God's word becomes our foundation, we will begin to build our lives the way that God has intended. We will be able to live out his statutes, walk in his ways. First Peter 2, 4 through 5 says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus. This is God's plan. But if we place any person, any philosophy, any ambition, any goal, any, any other thing in the place of the cornerstone position, our life will not be sustained. We have to allow Christ to be the central piece. His gospel is good. We can't waver from it. We have to continue to pursue him, to allow him the authority and supremacy that he rightfully deserves. So on who should we build our life? Only Jesus. Let's stand this morning as we wrap up today. Can I tell you, we're very tempted to build our lives on other things in this world. It's the same temptation that comes with the things we allow to, to reside in our temple. But it's got to be only Jesus. He is the way. The only way. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. 
And I just want you to ask yourself today, building on last week, what would my life look like if I would allow Jesus to cleanse my temple? What would my life look like if my cornerstone was Jesus and my foundation was his word? For most of us, our life would look vastly different. I don't think that we have begun to see the things that God would do in and through his body if that is the way we lived every day of our life. But there's the beauty of God's grace and mercy. And it doesn't matter what you've built your life upon. God's supernatural way, when we ask and we allow, he will replace whatever we have built our life upon with Jesus as our cornerstone. Now, I don't know how many construction projects you've been a part of, but oftentimes that means there's got to be a little demolition to make that happen. But there is no greater life that you can build with anything else and anyone else outside of Jesus. I want you to bow your heads with me, close your eyes. Scripture teaches us that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory. But that if we confess with our mouth that he is Lord and we believe that he has been raised from the dead, when we confess our sins, scripture teaches he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today, maybe, maybe this is the first time you've, call, you've heard him calling you, the first time you've heard the message of Jesus, the hope of redemption, the beautiful good news that he is our savior. Maybe it's the 10th time, 15th, 20th, God's patient, but he's still coming after you today. If you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, that's me. I need to pray that prayer. I need my life to be right. I need to give my life to him. I need to make him king and savior and Lord of my life. And I'm ready to do it today. Will you just slip your hand up? Nobody's looking in the room, just me. You say, hey, I need to pray that prayer today. All over the room, the balcony. Can we all repeat this prayer after me today? Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins and I wanna be made new. I invite you to come into my life. I wanna trust you as Savior and follow you as King. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Church, can we celebrate those today making decisions to follow Jesus? Amen.